Well, where can you behold Him? We sing, turn our eyes toward, toward Him. Well, the Bible tells us that the place that we can behold God, behold Christ, is in His Word. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to cover the first three verses. But as I said, we, we've moved into a new section in the book. One of the first areas I served in as a young Christian was director of evangelism at, at my church. It was, a, it was a volunteer position. I actually think they just made the position up because I was zealous and witnessed all the time, and they thought, why not? Maybe he can fire some other people up. We we called it, uh, you know, being on fire for Jesus, and I surely was and still am. I, and I can recall taking and then leading others in, in the old evangelism explosion program. Do you remember D. James Kennedy, E.E.? It was a, uh, one of the probing questions that you were to ask someone in a witnessing situation was, if you were to die today and, and stand before God... God would ask you, why should I let you in my heaven? What, what would you say? What would your answer be? That question is asked because it really gets to the heart of what you're trusting in for eternal life. And why you could ask that question in, in many different ways. There's no more crucial question to, to, to consider than, than, the, than the matter of, of your, your salvation. It's a matter of eternal significance. The basis of your hope of heaven is, is something every person must be crystal clear about. It's if, you're, if you place your hope of eternal life in the wrong thing and you, and you stand before God and, and find out what you're trusting in will, will not get you in, then, then you're doomed. I mean, as Stephen Cole said, there are no makeup exams at the, at the great white throne judgment. I mean, it's fixed. It's done. Yeah, it's amazing the, the answers I've gotten to that question even from people who have been in church for, for, for a while or have read significant parts of the Bible. Answers like, uh, I've lived a good life, I've done the best that I could do, and I think God understands. I've had that, quest, that answer many times. Or, this is probably the most common one, I, I'm, a, I'm a basically good person, I've never tried to hurt anyone, I'm not like, and then they fill in you know, Jeffrey Dahmer or Hitler or some, you know, an axe murderer. Of course, getting into heaven is not just... Just a matter of answering a question correctly. I mean, it requires a spiritual transformation uh, on the scale of the resurrection of the dead. Jesus says it's. It requires God forgiving your sins and so that you're truly reconciled to Him. But to get there, to allow that to have that happen, you you must be clear on the basis of how that takes place. And the Bible teaches that all mankind is fallen and sinful under the curse of God, incapable of, of saving itself from God's wrath. But God, on the basis of the life and death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ, and Him alone, grants sinners a judicial pardon or justification, which is received solely through faith. This is the doctrine called sola fide, or salvation by, by faith alone, that burned like a phosphorus candle during the, during the Reformation. It asserts God's pardon for guilty sinners is granted to and received through faith, unaccompanied by anything else and excluding all works. The Shorter Baptist Catechism of 1813 states it this way. 
Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Only and alone. The great difference between biblical Christianity and every other religion found is, is, is rooted in this doctrine. It's the heart of the gospel. It's the primary argument of the New Testament. It's the connect, uh, connecting thread that holds the whole Bible together, from Genesis to, to Revelation. It is the doctrine upon which Christianity stands or falls. If, if the gospel is a wheel, then faith alone is the hub if Christ is the bread we need, then, then faith alone is the arm that, that puts it in our mouth. If Christ's righteousness is the credit we need, then faith is the card that gives us access. If, if forgiveness is the balm, then faith is the key that, that opens the container. If, if salvation is the medicine for our sin-sick souls, then faith is the dropper that carries it to our lips. And there was no greater champion of this truth than, than the Apostle Paul. And you find it right here in the heart of, of the letter to the Philippians. Paul outlines this, this letter, you could outline it, I should say, in nine parts. And we're entering this, this sixth section today where Paul gives a serious warning about trusting in anything besides faith alone for, for your salvation. In chapter 3, he transitions from these examples that we've been, been looking at, uh, what we're supposed to imitate, to some designs we're supposed to avoid. He shows us the deadly schemes that can lead you far away from true Christianity. In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul gives a command to rejoice in the Lord. And then he spends the rest of the chapter contrasting the marks of true Christianity with its false imitation. He warns the Philippian church to watch out for evil people who promote false religion, fake Christianity, in verse 2. And then he reminds them how they can know that, that they are the true circumcision. They're, they're true believers. They're people who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus alone, and they don't rely on any human effort. And then Paul refers to his own life experience, which we'll get to in verses 4 through, through 11, and then he exhorts them to imitate him again. We're only going to cover these first three verses, but, but don't overlook this introduction. I mean, there is not a more pivotal, uh, pivotal section to understand where true righteousness comes from in all the Bible than, than these, these three verses that we're going to look at this morning. And to caution us, Paul starts with a command directed at your worship in verse 1. He issues a warning about false worship in verse 2, and then he ends with a description of true worship in verse 3. We'll, we'll summarize it this way. Three reminders about true Christianity. There's a joyful command to focus your worship. Rejoice in the Lord. There's a scathing warning to beware false worship. Beware the, the dogs. And he actually describes them in three ways. And then there's a distinct description of true worship. You are the true circumcision. What's the true circumcision? And then he gives us three defining characteristics of true circumcision. Let's look at the first one here in verse 1. There's a joyful command. The first reminder about true Christianity, true Christianity is found in a joyful command to focus your, your worship. Verse 1, 
Finally, brethren, or my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Paul says true Christian worship is expressed and it has a particular object. The expression of of worship is, is, is in rejoicing. And then the object is is Christ. The word translated finally here is is not like we would think finally or in conclusion. It's not like when the preacher says in conclusion and then then he goes on for, for the next 15 minutes. Paul is saying, as for the rest, or as I was saying, he's bringing us back to, to what he was saying in chapter 1 before he went into the, the picture of Christ and his humility and exaltation and then the three examples. He, he's like saying, as I was saying, let me, let me bring you back. And he connect, uh, connects the, the command with, with what he's already told us, to express worthy worship. I want you to walk worthy of the, of the gospel. And now he says to do that through rejoicing. Rejoicing, Paul says, is how a true Christian expresses their faith, genuine faith, in life. We often get this command wrong because we think, or I should say we misunderstand it, because we think that uh, we, we hear rejoicing in the Lord and we think of joy like an emotion. Have you ever wondered how God can command you to have joy when you have all these bad things and suffering going on? You say, how can I be happy? I'm, I'm really sad right now. I mean, I'm supposed to just, like, disregard everything that's happening around me and the emotions I'm a fee- feeling and just flip a switch? Well, if you think that way, you're thinking about joy wrongly. Gordon Fee said the, the joy Paul talks about does not refer to a feeling, but an activity. Paul is not commanding good feelings or a positive mood here. Like, well, you need to feel good about your life even though it's bad right now because God wants me to. That's not what Paul means. I don't even know that that's, that that's biblical or, or, or possible. You'll fail at it and then you'll, you'll feel worse um, if you think it's emotional. Paul is commanding an intentional activity that can have the byproduct of good emotions, but it can also be present in the storm of suffering accompanied with tears. You can rejoice while crying. You can rejoice in the middle of a storm. And you can rejoice when everything's great and you feel good. That's because biblical joy is not based on our circumstances or, as they say, happenings like happiness. It's it's rooted in your relationship to Christ. Focus on Christ and you will rejoice, which is why it's part of true worship. Only believers can do this. Focus on anything else, and and you'll get whatever is matching to your circumstance. Focus on the fact that it's a sunny day, and you like it's a sunny day, then then, then what will follow is is how you calculate that, and good emotions will come. Focus on the rainy day, or or your stubbed toe, or whatever it is, and you'll get whatever follows, whatever would be natural. Rejoicing is to resolutely look at the basis of your salvation and your standing, and then render praise to God. It's to turn your eyes upon Jesus, not on your lame arm in a sling. (laughs) Rejoicing is a theologically motivated activity. It's not uh, an emotional product. It's a theologically motivated activity. That's why it can be present in the storm. It's why it can be commanded. You say, how? (laughs) 
How? Well, Paul shows us. Paul connects our rejoicing to a relationship. Look at verse 1 again. He says rejoice. There's the imperative command. But he says rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Do you see that? There to rejoice. That's the imperative. But, but notice where their joy is to be founded. It's, it's to be founded in, in the Lord. In verse 2, Paul will, will say it's not in the deeds of the flesh. But here he gives us the correct focus for our worship. It's in Christ and His work. It's in a relationship. In the Lord refers to the object, the ground, and the sphere of the command. The Lord is the object of our joy. We can rejoice over Him. The sphere of your rejoicing takes place in the Lord. He's the source of your joy. It's bubbling up in your heart. Your saved heart resonates with Christ as you begin to to focus on Him. It's like a tuning fork. And he just told them to welcome Epaphroditus with great joy and that he was sending him so they would rejoice. And now he's saying that rejoicing is found in the, in the Lord. So he ties it all together here. Rejoicing in the Lord is a spiritual attitude as you recognize your security and spiritual blessings in Christ. And, and as you rejoice in that and meditate on it, the, you can have the byproduct of a biblical joy. I mean, if you attempt to find security, spiritual blessing through your flesh or your efforts, or a religious system, then, then you're going to find nothing but, but a dry well. It's impossible for those things to produce what Paul commands here. And you say, well, I see that, but, but I'd like for it to be even clearer, okay? Paul actually illustrates rejoicing in the Lord in verses 8 through 11. Look, if you would, at verse 8. This is like a, a DIY YouTube on rejoicing in the Lord. Paul commands it, and then he, he illustrates it. More than that, Paul says in verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. Do you hear the calculation going on there? Do you hear him turning it? Do you see him turning his eyes toward Jesus? He's saying all these things around me, all these things I've given up and was looking toward, all this loss or pain that would be a person's normal focus, I calculate it based on a gospel scale, and it's weightless. It's, it's worse than weightless. It's, it's rubbish. Now watch the shift, shift to another hope. There's the calculation, there's the turning of the way and the calculation, and watch the shift here at the end of, of verse, verse 8. So that... I might gain or I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of, of faith. There's the rejoicing in Christ. It's away from whatever and, and now it's in Christ. Well, well what about Him? What, what do I gain from Him? Well, watch the rejoicing, the expression of, of praise that comes from a genuine heart. Listen to Paul's heart here. In verse verse 9, that I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death, in order that I might attain that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Do you hear the rejoicing there? 
That's what rejoicing in the Lord looks like. It's not happy feelings. It means to look away from one thing, life, your circumstances, whatever you're trusting in, look to Jesus and what you gain in Him, and then to verbalize that from the heart in in some form of praise. The reason for such rejoicing in the Lord has to do with being found in Him, Paul says in verses 8 and 9. Knowing Christ far surpasses everything else. Only a Christian can think uh, think that way. That's why it's, it's the focus of your worship. So what about your worship? Are you anxious? Unhappy? Troubled? What's, what's in the crosshairs of your heart? Are you rejoicing in your relationship with Jesus Christ or, or are you trying to find something else? Trying to find something in everything else? Maybe you're empty or grumpy. Look at your focus. If it's not in your relationship with Jesus and, and what He's done, then you cannot rejoice like God commands you here. He, he is the focus of your worship. But, but look at the, the second reminder here. Here's a <clears throat> scathing warning to beware false worship. If you would, at, at verse 1 again. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. There's the command about your worship. And then he says to write the same things again. Notice it's plural. He's not talking about rejoicing in the Lord, the the single command there. But but to write the same things that I'm getting ready to tell you, it's no trouble to me. And it's a safeguard for you. What things, Paul? Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation or, or false circumcision. So after giving us the ground of true Christian worship, Paul warns us to beware of those who teach the opposite. Verse 2 and 3, these next two verses, they're a comparison between those who are religious and those who are truly righteous. And we're to rejoice in the Lord. Paul now shows us what will hinder that, and then Paul shows us in verse 3 what will promote that. Works righteousness that is circulating from false teachers hinders that. And looking to Christ alone for righteousness promotes it. So here he describes those promoting false worship, those to be aware or be warned about in, in three ways. He says they're like unclean outsiders. They're, they're like evil recruiters. They're like pagan idolaters. That's what these three words mean. I think it's a good way to summarize them. He's warned the Philippians about them before. <clears throat> That's what he says in verse 1. It's his transition. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. Paul says he is about to to repeat something. And it's, it's his purposeful pleasure. Paul has no problem repeating things that you've already heard or you, you've already known. There's a clamoring in the world today. Teach me something new. The Bible says, tell me something old. Tell me the old, old story. That's what will save you, not something new and innovative. And Paul says, I have no problem telling the old story. I've told it to you again. And I've also told you to beware of certain people. I tell you again. But, and I do that for your safety, Paul says. The idea here is the, the same things, to write the same things to you. For me, I don't hesitate to do that. And for you, it's a safeguard that, that I do. It's like saying, on the one hand, I will keep on saying it without apology, and on the other hand, you shouldn't get tired of hearing it because it'll protect you. And then he gives three warnings. Beware the dogs, beware the evildoers, those mutilators of the, of the flesh. Now, 
there's some cutting sarcasm here, pun intended, because Paul intends it. He's talking about Jewish followers who were teaching Gentiles that they must keep Jewish Torah laws to be a true Christian. Specifically, circumcision. And what's even more cringeworthy is that these people were, were likely present in the Philippian church. Now, imagine, if, if you will, the fanfare of being part of the Philippian church, and Epaphroditus comes back into town. You hear he's dead. He shows up, fit as a fiddle. And, and when his arrival, the joy of his arrival fades, he, he says, hey, I have a letter from, from Paul with me. And the elders there say, that, that's great. And they all gather around quietly, quietly to listen. And, and someone begins to read Paul's letter out loud. And he gets to this point. And the Judaizers who are teaching this are sitting in the congregation listening to Paul call them dogs and evildoers and not the true circumcision. <laughs> How's that for a sensitive Christian soul? It's even worse in other letters where Paul thinks that they're being successful. He only warns them here. But to the Galatian church and to the Corinthians where, where this is happening, he calls them servants of Satan who think they're servants of Christ. And Paul reverses their, their own epithet here. They're calling people who won't be circumcised dogs. You're outside of the kingdom. And, and he says the Gentiles are clean they're the, and included through Christ alone. The Judaizers are the unclean outsiders. The people that are teaching this, they're the unclean outsiders. This is what this spiritual zoology implies, as, as one commentator put it. Dogs were, were not lovable pets like, like we think. I'm sure you've heard that before. They were regarded as despicable, aggravating creatures. They'll eat anything, including dead animals, human corpses, even their own vomit. There were some Jewish followers who were saying that even though the Gentile believers were followers of Jesus, they were regarded, still regarded as unclean since they did not conform to the purity laws of the, of, of the Old Testament. And Walter Hansen said, until these Gentile converts came within the circle of Judaism, they were considered by the Judaizers as outside the circle of the people of God. They, they were therefore regarded as unclean dogs. This works the same way today, doesn't it? Now, you're not going to probably encounter somebody who tells you that circumcision is required for salvation. But you will encounter people who imply you're, you're not a good Christian or even a real one unless you follow their specific guidelines, right? And you can be explicit like the Church of Christ. You're not going to heaven unless you submit to water baptism. Or it could be like the Catholics who say, you must participate in the seven sacraments in order to be, to be granted access to, to heaven. But, but a lot of times it's, it's implied or it's implicit. You must dress a certain way or avoid certain activities or, or you're not as sincere as they are. You're, you're an unclean Christian. And every time you encounter someone who, who, who does this either explicitly or implicitly, anybody who adds anything to Christ and teaches other to do, others to do that, Paul says they're the ones who are unclean and they're the ones who are outside the circle of salvation, if that's what you're trusting in. It's that serious. I mean, think about this. 
the Apostle Paul had Timothy circumcised to keep from hindering the gospel, but he refused to force Titus to be circumcised for the very same reason, to keep from hindering the gospel, depending upon who was, who was considering it. He said in 1 Corinthians 8, to refuse meat sacrificed to, to idols instead of causing a brother to stumble... And yet the minute that the Apostle Peter blurred the gospel by refusing to eat with Gentiles, Paul said, pass the unclean meat. I'm going to eat it. And you're wrong, Peter, for what you're doing. Beware adding anything to the basis of salvation. It may seem like what you're adding will make you even more pure, but Paul says it will defile you and keep you outside of of God's family. But notice what else he calls them. Beware dogs, verse 2. Beware evil workers, workers being like recruiters. He starts by saying their position is outside of the people of God, and now he says their work is evil. You think about that being a Jew, hearing you're an evil worker. And their work was trying to draw Gentile Christians away from Christ. They may boast of their good works, but they, Paul says that the work that they do is, is really evil. Evil. The danger of false religion is the deception that it brings. And people who are self-deceived are, are hard workers. People who follow religious systems are typically self-deceived. I can remember two Mormons showing up at my, my door years ago, and they told me that I needed to, to read a specific passage from the Book of Mormon, and then I, then I needed to pray and ask God, if, if this is true then give me a feeling that it is. That's what they did, and that's how they were converted to to Mormonism. They just knew it was right. God gave them a feeling. And as part of their their spiel, they both told me that, you know, we attended church whenever we were were young, but they opened their heart to to Mormonism, and now they're on this two-year missionary journey for the service to the LDS church. I plan on witness to, witnessing to them, so I kept the conversation going, and, and, and I asked them uh, where they came from. And they actually named the county that my parents live in. They named my parents, parents' county. And to my surprise, then unsolicited, one of the men said, yeah, and the people that are in that county were, were very unreceptive to our message. There was a Baptist preacher there who was, who was a dishonest man and told everyone that we were false teachers, so we had to leave. And he named the preacher. He gave the preacher's name. And I smiled and said, that's interesting. Because I know that man. That happens to be my mother's pastor. He was. And I said, he's a godly man. And I, now I know he's a faithful man, too, for protecting his people from your teaching. And I asked them if, if they would, would read another passage, like the one that they asked me to read, and probably out of sheer embarrassment. I mean, you should have seen the look on their face. I mean, what are the odds that you would name the county and name the specific preacher? And so I opened my Bible to Galatians 1 and asked them to start reading aloud, and, and they started reading out loud. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is not really another, but, but there are some who are di- disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And we have said before, so I say now again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And they handed the Bible back to me and didn't stay any longer. There were two men who were self-deceived, who were going door to door, and Paul says they were evil workers because they were adding to the gospel of Christ. They were working hard to deceive others. And Paul says what these Judaizers are doing. Paul says anyone who adds to the gospel is an evil worker. But there's one more title that's even more serious, that probably stung, even worse than than being dogs or evildoers. He says, beware the false circumcision. The final warning that Paul gives here brings the harm that these dogs and evildoers cause. He brings it into focus. He says they're not circumcisers, they're mutilators, just like pagan priests. That's his emphasis. Some of your translations will say false circumcision, and it's a a play on words that, that, that you can't see in the English here, but... But it's very clear in the Greek. The Greek word for circumcision is peritome, which which means to cut around. Paul uses uh, katatome here, which means to cut to pieces. Paul is saying these Jews who think that they're righteous and they're following the Torah were actually doing exactly what pagan priests would do. They're trusting in cutting themselves just like the pagans do to gain favor with God. They they were like the prophets of Baal, who cut themselves in order to try to get Baal to hear them. That's what these these mutilators were doing. Paul says, beware adding anything to the gospel of Christ. It, It makes you like a prophet of Baal in God's eyes. And you'll cut yourself or deny yourself or restrict yourself or whatever it is that that you'll put in the place of circumcision and God will will not hear you. You can pray all you want and try to make bargains with God, but the only prayer He hears is the humble call for Christ or or the humble prayer in Jesus' name, in Christ. You say, wow. So if that's how God feels about false worship, I don't want to do that. What does true worship look like? That's what Paul describes next. It'll be the third reminder about True Christianity, it's found in a distinct description of true, true worship, if you would, at verse 3. He says, for we are the true circumcision. We're not mutilators. We're not dogs. We're not evil workers. We're the true circumcision. Well, what, a, what does the true circumcision look like? What are the true people of God? What are their characteristics, Paul? Well, he tells us, who worship in the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in the flesh. He says, true worship, worships in the Spirit, it glories in Christ, and it puts no confidence in the flesh. Paul now turns the table and says, we are the true circumcision. The we's emphatic. We, not they, are the true circumcision. Meaning the people of God in the Old Testament Circumcision was was the sign that distinguished God's people from the unbelieving world. 
after the, the sign was given to Abraham in Genesis 17, then all Jewish people practiced it as a sign of the covenant. But Genesis 17 comes after God makes His unconditional covenant with Abraham when He gives it in chapter 12 and ratifies it in chapter 15. Chapter 12, you know, here's Abraham, he's a pagan, he's in the land of Ur, he's not thinking about God or paying attention to God, and God appears to him and says, "Leave your, come out of your country and go to a land I'll show you, and He makes a promise to him. And so Abraham does, by faith, he does that. And then he's, he's lamenting uh, about only having Eleazar as, a, as his offspring. He doesn't have a son after God promises him all these descendants. And, and God says in, in Genesis 15, Eleazar is not the son of promise. You're going to have a son from your own loins. He takes him outside and he says, look up into the stars, look into the sky, the stars of, of the sky. That, that, that's what your descendants are going to be like. And the Bible says, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited unto him for righteousness. Faith brought righteousness to, to Abraham. And then in Genesis chapter 17, God gives a sign to Abraham that God made this covenant with him. What Abraham did in circumcision had nothing to do with the covenant, nothing to do with, 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 with whether the covenant would stand or fall in order to emphasize that, that, that man has nothing to do with, with, with salvation by, by faith alone, nothing to do with, with, with God's covenant. God puts Abraham to sleep. Cuts the pieces. Abraham cuts the pieces of the, of the sacrifice and... You know the story in Genesis 15, and then God puts Abraham to sleep, and God alone walks between the pieces, declaring, I alone, this promise is based on me and me alone, not on you. And the circumcision was a sign that Abraham believed that. It's an external sign of faith that was inward. It was his inward faith that connected him to God. And that was in Genesis 17, God said further to Abraham, now as you, now as for you, you shall keep, watch this, my covenant. God always describes it as my covenant. You and your descendants after you throughout their generations, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be to the, the sign of the covenant between me and you. It was a sign of the covenant. That's why the prophets talked about circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy 30. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Romans 2.29. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is, is not from man, but from God. The Jews had reduced it to like a tribal tattoo instead of the sign of a transformed spirit. And those that Paul calls the true circumcision have three characteristics. One, they serve God by the Spirit. Two, they boast in Christ Jesus. And three, they put no confidence in the flesh. True worship, genuine Christian faith serves God by the Spirit. Isn't that exactly what Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well? You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we do know. Our worship's directed in the, in the right place, but now here comes true worship. 
God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Not in externals, but, but in the internals, externals alone. The word for worship here is the same word in Romans 12, 1. Paul echoes the same theology. King James says it's your reasonable service. You, you, you offer your body as a living sacrifice, and that's your reasonable service, or your spiritual service of worship. It's how you worship God, by offering yourself as a living sacrifice, not participating in dead rituals, but, but, but a living sacrifice. That's how you worship God. When Paul uses the word, it, it always has the sense of all of life should be an act of service and worship of God. And that's made possible by the life-giving Spirit. It's the Spirit of God who makes your worship alive and acceptable. I mean, you can come to church, you can be baptized, you can do all of the things that, that, that I do and that true believers do, and they're meaningless unless the Spirit of God is empowering them. And the Spirit of God offers them to, to the Lord as, a, as something genuine and pure in Christ. He great, the Spirit graces your, you with gifts. He grants you life. He gives you new desires. And your spiritual service is your devotion to God, evidenced by the, by the, way, the way you live. It, it's whole body worship offered as Spirit-operated sacrifice. And you either serve by the Spirit or you, you serve in the arm of the flesh. You either have a physical circumcision or you have a spiritual one and, and a true one. And, and Paul says the true people of God, they, they worship God. They rejoice in Christ. And they have the Spirit. The Spirit's what empowers them to, to do that. If you look at what Christians do and there's something about it that doesn't make sense to you or you've tried to do what they do and, and there's, there's, there's continual failure there or, or just something's not adding up or not clicking, you may be missing the most integral part, the Spirit. And that's salvation. You're given the Spirit of, of God for empowerment. It's the Spirit of God that even brings about your, your salvation. True people of God have the Spirit. Look at you again at verse 3, though, because they also boast in one secure place. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus. True Christians glory or boast in Jesus Christ. Proverbs talks a lot about boasters, and it's, it's a very unattractive thing, isn't it? Whenever somebody stands up and, and they boast, cause people to follow them. But people that have, that have any maturity about them, they, they know that if they're based, boasting in the wrong thing, it, it, can be, it can be vain. But here Paul tells us to boast in Christ, to, to boast in, in the Lord. That's not wrong. It means to give, give Him credit for all you are and... And all you have, a, a true believer finds their foundation in Christ. They glory in Him. They, they exult in, in Him. Paul means we, we boast on the right basis. It's Christ's work. And not our own. To believe in Jesus Christ is to put one's confidence in Him. He is our ground for assurance. He's... He is therefore our grounds for, for joyful pride. 
and exalted boasting. I mean, to even think of giving credit to anything other than Jesus is utterly repulsive to a Christian, isn't it? I mean, when you think about some of the thoughts that go through your mind about taking credit for something that the Lord did and, and, and holding that up, you know, like little Jack Horner that sat in the corner and he stuck in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I. And when you even think about that in, in whatever context, doing that before God, isn't something just repulsive in your heart? You, you do what the song says, you pour contempt on all your pride. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And to boast in the Lord means to find all your hope there. Doesn't it fill you with gratitude when you think about about Jesus? He's the ground on which you stand. He's your righteousness. In Him you're holy and blameless before God. That's something to rejoice in. That's something to, to boast in. Not in externals. Not in anything else. Finally, that... That's the contrast to false believers. They boast in their flesh, and, and, and we don't. Look at verse 3. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence, emphatic, no confidence in the flesh. Just turns the coin over and gives the, the opposite side of boasting in Christ. The final characteristic of a true believer, they put no confidence in the flesh. The, the word for flesh is not like physical tissue. It represents mankind's fallen nature, uh, human ability apart from God, it, human merit, human status, human achievement. Paul says we do not insist that any outward observance makes us a member of the covenant or gives us standing before God. Christians put no confidence in anything that their flesh can produce. And others rejected boasting in the Lord for confidence in their own ability. That's, that's what mutilation will do for you. Those who are true circumcision trust in, in nothing their hands or hearts can, can produce. Besides, what could you offer God? I mean, think about it. What do you have to offer God that He doesn't already own, or that He doesn't already have, or that He needs? He's made the world and everything in it. He made you. He made you for His glory. He can do whatever He wanted to do with you. He's God. He's omnipotent. He doesn't need you. What do you have that He would want? I mean, you're sinful. I'm sinful. God's holy. Even on our best day, the Bible says our deeds are like, are like repulsive, stinking garments. Before the Lord, like filthy rags. You and I have nothing to offer God that, that He doesn't already have, which is what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Acts. You know, doesn't need anything made with our hands. But salvation, Paul says, is not about what we offer God, it's about what He offered for us, which is His Son. And those who have received what, what He has offered for, for us. Christ sacrifice on the cross and we boast in that and we put no confidence in anything else. That's why we glory in it. Because we know it can't be attained any other way but because of grace and through faith. Gordon Fee said Paul points to their basic relationship with Christ 
which should illuminate all attraction to uh, eliminate, I should say, all attraction to religious or religious identity symbols because they have no future in them at all. Notice the Trinity here. It's part of true Christianity. True righteousness comes from, from God. It's the Spirit of God as a genitive. Whose indwelling Spirit believers are now serving by that Spirit and who have put all their trust in Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen Son. Here's a Trinitarian passage. We sing this verse in a song. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And what's the rest of it say? All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. We rejoice in the rock, which is Christ. And we see that everything else is sinking sand. Three reminders about true Christianity. A joyful command concerning the object of your worship. The activity is to place your hope in Christ alone, rejoice in Him. A scathing warning to to beware adding anything to that or, or following anybody that adds anything to that. And then a distinct description the true people of God. True worshipers live by the Spirit. They know that Jesus Christ is their sure foundation and they they won't mingle Him with, with anything else. So what are you trusting in for your salvation? Jesus? Oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. Is it Christ alone? What He accomplished alone? Is it your faith that you're trusting in? Your faith won't even get you to, to heaven. It's what your faith is, is placed in. There are people that are, that are really faithful and really sincere, but that faith is connected to the wrong thing. It's Jesus. It's Jesus alone. What are you rejoicing in? You're dry, struggling. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. Think about what He's done for you. Add nothing to that and... And the joy bells will start ringing in your heart, as they say. Or you'll rejoice even in the midst of tears and suffering, but it'll be real, it'll be concrete, it'll be something that will anchor you and hold you. That's what true Christians do. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that you repeat things to us. I am that dense, Lord. I need reminded. And as you've told us this morning, that reminder is for our safety and security. Thank you for it. I, I pray for anybody this morning or anybody that's, that's coming in the next service that's never trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. I pray that today they would. Today they would, you would strip away anything that they're using to prop themselves up, put them at the foot of the cross looking only to Christ. And I pray for any believer that's struggling to rejoice, maybe thinking about emotions, I pray that you would turn their, their eyes to your son and his work, and they will find security there. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.